0: Good morning, morning church. It's great to be with you, great to be together as a church family. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Christian Fellowship. If you're visiting this morning, very grateful that you're here. Thank you for being here this morning. We are taking a break uh, from our series in the Gospel of John, taking a break this summer, and going through uh, some of the Psalms. Last week was Psalm 20. This week is Psalm 21, see how that works? Master plan. I'm gonna pray for us, and then we'll get started. Pray with me, would you please? Our Father and our God, we thank you. We thank you for your word, we thank you for preserving the Psalms for us. And Lord, this morning we pray that your spirit would work with your word. God, we, we, we pray that you would exalt yourself, that you would magnify yourself, Lord, that we would see you and your great son, King Jesus, as you really are. Would you use our time together? God, we thank you in advance in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I remember watching the original release of The Empire Strikes Back. What was it, like 1980? Is that right? 1980? I I went to this thing that they called a movie theater. Have you ever movie theater? It was this building, yeah, okay, you, you get it. For those of you that follow Star Wars, you know that The Empire Strikes Back is the second of the original Star Wars trilogy, right? It's, it's, it's movie number two. And there's just something about the second movie or the second part of a trilogy. You know what I'm talking about? It's that sense of in-between right? I'm constantly kind of looking back to the first part, and then I'm, I'm also at the same time looking forward uh, to what's going to happen in the third part. You, you get what I'm saying? It's kind of this in-between thing. I'm looking back. I'm looking forward, and it was like that with the two towers, right? You remember the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy? Is, uh, you remember that as well? I remember going to that, thinking back, and then I, all I could think about was what was going to happen in the third one. Well, Psalm 21 is like that too. It looks back and it looks forward. In the first half of Psalm 21, the people look back and they give thanks for the king's victory, for a past victory. And in the second half of the psalm, it looks forward and anticipates the king's future victory. And so, we could really summarize, I mean, the main main message of the psalm is pretty simple, pretty straightforward, something like, God gives the king victory. And it's a psalm in three basic parts. First, we hear the people give thanks for the king's past victory. And then there's a, a middle section, kind of a hinge, kind of the center of the psalm, in which the people recognize the source of the king's confidence, And then the third part of the psalm, the people look forward and anticipate the king's future victory. So thanks for victory past, the source of the king's confidence, and then an anticipation of the king's future victory. Well, first we'll look at thanks for the king's past victory. Last week, if you were here, we looked at Psalm 20, and we saw that the nation of Israel is under threat. And the king, if you know anything about what the king was like back then, he was responsible to protect the nation. And so the people prayed for the king. Because here's the thing, the king's victory is the people's victory. And so the people pray for the king, and they ask God to give king safety and victory in Psalm 20. And now in Psalm 21, the people give thanks because God has answered their prayers, Psalm 21 begins, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. The ESV there translates the Hebrew word Yeshua as salvation, and it can also mean deliverance or victory. And so the people of Israel give thanks to God for responding to the request and giving the king victory. It's a general, uh, general giving of thanks. And in the following verses, they get very specific with their thanks. In verses three and five, they give thanks for the honor this victory gives the king. For the honor this victory gives the king, they say, "For you meet him with rich blessings." You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. It's the people picture God welcoming King David back into the city of Jerusalem, possibly wearing the crown of the king that he defeated, he and his army defeated. We see this in 2 Samuel 12. Reference to that. This crown, what it is, would be a public sign of honor bestowed on the king by God. It would be an open sign of divine approval for all to see. So they give thanks for the king's honor. The people also give thanks that the king's life is preserved in verse 4. They say this, He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. The king had led his military into the dangers of war, and God had spared his life. The description length of days there simply means long life. We have a saying even now, we say what? Long live the king, right? That's basically saying you have given him long natural life. But it's more than just long life. They add to the end forever and ever. And that little phrase forever and ever hints at God's promise to David that his royal line, his kingly line, would go on forever. God had promised that to David in 2 Samuel 6. It's a life that continues, a life that continues through David's descendants. And that's why the the New English translation renders verse 4 it says this, you have granted him long life and an enduring dynasty. Okay, so there's honor, there's life, and then finally in verse 6, the people give thanks for the king's joy because of God's presence. Verse 6, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence the presence of God, if you're, if you're familiar with the sweep of the Bible, the, the presence of God is the central promise of all the biblical covenants. It's God's presence which makes glad and gives joy. And so we see in this first part of Psalm 21, the people give thanks for the honor, life, and joy that are the blessings of the king's victory. This practice of giving thanks for victory uh, continued and continues throughout history. After the decisive battles at Saratoga turned the fortunes of the fledgling United States in the, in the Revolutionary War, the United States Congress set aside December 18th, 1777, as a day of thanksgiving. And hear me, it wasn't some vague giving of thanks, kind of like, Our thanksgiving, right? It's just this vague thanksgiving. No, the Congress actually wrote out this specific giving of thanks. And here's part of what they wrote. We give thanks to Almighty God, who has been pleased to crown our army with most signal success. Like the people of Psalm 21, this early Congress gave thanks that God gave the victory. Well, one lesson that we can take from Psalm 21, verses 1 through 6, is that we should give thanks. A lesson I need to hear, right? I tend to be a pessimistic, glass-half-full guy. I call myself a realist, right? You know what I'm saying? Maybe there's some realists out there with me. Any realist? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. We can, we, we can talk later. In his book, The Grumbler's Guide to Giving Thanks, Dustin Crow begins with what he calls a gratitude quiz. And I'm sure you didn't expect to have a pop quiz this Sunday morning. But here we go. Three questions. I don't need you or really want you to raise your hand. You don't need to do that. You don't need to yell it out either. But I would like you to think about how you would respond, how you would answer these questions. Question one, do you more often A remember God's blessings in your life, or B, forget them. And if you say what blessings, that would be answer B, okay? Just to clarify. Number two, do you tend to rehearse A, God's generosity and goodness, or B, what seems unfair, Number three, if you were to list reasons for gratitude, would it be A, a long list and easy to come up with things to give thanks for, or B, a short list and hard to think of many things? I wonder how you did. Based on these questions, it's clear that I need to grow in giving thanks. And here's the thing, giving thanks is good for you. It's good for you mentally and physically. A 2010 study on gratitude and well-being found that, quote, gratitude and well-being are strongly related. Gratitude is good for you mentally and physically. It's good for you spiritually. The practice of giving thanks leads to knowing God more deeply because giving thanks actually creates more intimacy with God. Now, maybe you're thinking, John, that all sounds good, but I don't want to be one of those inauthentic, plastic-smile Christians, right? Happy, clappy Christians, and I agree, but the practice of giving thanks doesn't mean that we ignore the challenges of life in a fallen world. Dustin Crowe says it this way. I really like this. He says, biblical gratitude is gritty gratitude. It's honest about brokenness and affirms difficulties and disagreements all around. And yet, it sees reasons to give thanks in all things. It doesn't sweep the junk of life under the carpet of ignorance. But it does find more reasons to be grateful than to grumble. Here's the thing. We live in a very cynical and pessimistic age, and one way we can be different is to practice this kind of gritty gratitude. And that's not a natural thing. We're going to need God's help to do that. We need to ask our Heavenly Father to transform our grumbling hearts to grateful hearts. So the first thing we see in Psalm 20 is the people give thanks for the King's victory. The people prayed in Psalm 20, and God responds, and now the people give thanks. Second, we see the people recognize the source of the king's confidence. The source of the king's confidence. Like I said, this is kind of the center of this psalm. Let's look at verse 7 to see the source of the king's confidence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. What we learn from this verse is that the source of the king's confidence is, in a word, God's steadfast love. Steadfast love is a translation of a a Hebrew word. If you know one Hebrew word, this would be the one to know. It's the Hebrew word hesed. I think technically, some of you Hebrew speakers, isn't it like, Hassed? Try that. Hassed. Something like that. I'll just say Hassed. Hassed is translated "faithful love or faithfulness or loving-kindness." OK? Hassed is God's loyalty to the king said is God's loyalty to the king. And the title Most High emphasizes God as ruler of the universe. It, it, it highlights or emphasizes that God possesses all power. And so God, the one who possesses all power, makes an unbreakable commitment of loyal love to the king. It's a commitment of love that will never fade, falter, or fail. And that's what's meant by steadfast love. So the source of the king's confidence is God's steadfast love. This reference to God's steadfast love is ultimately an allusion to 2 Samuel 7, where God pledges his steadfast love to David. And what he does, what God does, is promise that through David's descendants, his kingdom will have no end. A Davidic king will always, always rule and in that sense David will enjoy an in- an eternal throne kind of like we saw alluded to back in verse 4 it would be something like Elon Musk one of the most powerful and wealthy persons in the world pledging his steadfast love to you and your descendants a steadfast love that Elon commits his $180 billion to you and to your descendants. Now, if that were to happen to you, would that give you some level of confidence and stability? At least financially, right? Well, that's something like God's steadfast love to King David. But if you know the history of Israel... You know that not long after David's rule, the, king, the, the kings in David's line turned away from God. They rejected God's steadfast love. And eventually, we learn that the, the Davidic kings are defeated. The nation of Israel is exiled. They're completely exiled. And even after some of the kings returned or some of the Israelites returned to the land, no Davidic king ruled what it looked like is that god's steadfast love to david had failed but the old testament promise the old testament prophets promised they insisted that a davidic king would come and around 2000 years ago a virgin from nazareth heard this decree about her son jesus she heard this from luke he will be great And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. God's steadfast love to David didn't fail. We see that Jesus is the promised king. He's the promised king. But here's the thing. When Jesus came, he was not the king that many expected. King David's victories involved the defeat of earthly powers, but King Jesus' victories would involve the defeat of the powers of sin and death. Jesus was victorious over sin through his perfect life and his substitutionary death. A death on the cross. Jesus was victorious over over death through his resurrection from the dead. Jesus then ascended into heaven and now rules and reigns at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus is the victorious king who will come again to eradicate all evil and consummate a kingdom of love, peace, and goodness as the writer of Hebrews puts it. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool footstool for his feet. Here's the thing with Psalm 21. Based on Jesus' victory over sin and death, there's a sense in which we can go back and read those first six verses and we find that their fulfillment is not their ultimate fulfillment is not in king david but in king jesus jesus is crowned with the honor of a worldwide rule verse 3 jesus has eternal life in that his resurrection is victory over death Verse 4, Jesus now enjoys reigning in the presence of God, his eternal Father. And Jesus' victory in all these ways was the fruit of his own confidence in his Father's steadfast love. The point is this, David was right to have confidence in God's steadfast love. And God's steadfast love can be your confidence as well. In Jesus, God offers his steadfast love to you and to me. And here's what that means for us. In Jesus, God offers complete and total forgiveness of sin. In Jesus, God offers his indwelling spirit. In Jesus, God offers to adopt you as his love child and make you an heir, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God offers you the hope of resurrection. When you place your confidence in in God's steadfast love for you in Jesus, when you place your confidence in Jesus, God's steadfast love for you is yours. King Jesus' victory becomes your victory. Here's the thing. Confidence in God's steadfast love provides the only real stability in life. It provides the only real stability for navigating the sorrows and the losses of life. Even more than King David, King Jesus modeled, he modeled this perfectly. His confidence in God's steadfast love brought a stability to his life. Even through betrayal, through public humiliation, through injustice and death, we read that Jesus was never moved. And confidence in God's steadfast love can do the same for you and for me. Here's the challenge. The challenge is that confidence in God's steadfast love is undermined by both our culture and our fickle hearts. Our culture teaches and our fickle hearts tend to look inward for confidence. We're taught and we tend to look to things like our own ability, our own talents, our own gifts, our our popularity, our accomplishment and prestige, our power, our influence, our education, our wisdom, our own savvy, our relationship, and the affirmation of others. As objects of confidence, each of these things makes promises that they cannot consistently keep. And so our daily experience is instability, the rise and fall of confidence. To be clear, it's not wrong to be talented, popular, accomplished, or influential. I kind of wonder what that would be like, right? It's not wrong. To have those things, to be those things, but it is wrong, even idolatrous, to look for these things to support our confidence. Biblical confidence teaches us not to look inward, but to look outward and upward to God's steadfast love. God and his steadfast love is the only reliable object of our confidence. One way to grow in confidence, you might ask, how do I do that? One way to grow in confidence in God's steadfast love is to constantly recognize that any abilities, any talents, any positions, and any ability to influence are gracious gifts of God. They're gifts given out of his steadfast love. And as we continue to practice gratitude to God for each of these, we will cultivate confidence in God's steadfast love, a confidence that results in growing stability. Well, in Psalm 21, we've seen first that the people give thanks for the king's victory. And second, we've seen that the people recognize the source of the king's confidence. And finally, we see the people anticipate the king's future victory. The people anticipate the king's future victory. What's happening in Psalm 21 is likely this, that the people recognize the king's confidence in God's steadfast love, and so the people anticipate the king will enjoy future victory. The future tenses of verses 8 through 12 reflect their belief that the king's past victory will not be his last victory. And as we read these verses, it's an expectation of victory that seems to kind of stretch beyond David to a future descendant, a descendant who appears in glory and defeats every enemy. And as we've seen, the New Testament identifies that descendant as Jesus As we read verses 8 through 12, notice how these verses speak of future victory in a conclusive manner, in a decisive manner. One commentator observes this about verse 8. One commentator observes the certainty of victory in verse 8. Verse 8 says this, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. So there's the certainty of the victory. Then there's the totality of the victory in verses 9 through 10. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. The totality of the victory, this future victory will leave no trace. There's the certainty of the victory, the totality of the victory, and finally there's the justice of the victory in verses 11 through 12. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Those who plan evil schemes against the king will get what they deserve, justice. If we stop long enough, these are horrifying words. And these horrifying words reminded me of a scene from the movie Remember the Titans, if you remember that movie. It's the regional championship game, and because of racial prejudice, the officials call the game unfairly. It's the moment of truth for Coach Yost. And at this point, he's seen enough. And if you remember, he gathers his formidable formidable defense together, and he says this, you blitz all night. If they gain another yard, I'm taking every last one of you out. And as, as his defense runs back onto the field, he yells, leave no doubt. And they didn't. There will be no doubt in King Jesus' future victory. All who rebel against him, all who were not with him, will be defeated. The psalmist describes this future victory as certain, total, and just King Jesus will judge every form of evil with perfect justice. Every careless word, every betrayal, every instance of abuse, because that's what it means for God's kingdom to come. Some say that they like the God of the New Testament the God of grace and mercy, but the God of the Old Testament, the God of wrath and judgment, no thanks. It's true that King Jesus came the first time to offer amnesty to rebels like you and like me. He came to offer mercy and grace to everyone who would receive him. But to those who reject him, the uniform witness of the New Testament is that Jesus will come again in wrath and judgment. He will put down evil in all its forms. So to the people who say they like the God of the New Testament, I usually say as respectfully as I can, have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever read passages like Acts 17? The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Or 2 Thessalonians 1. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Or Revelation 19, then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written King of kings and Lord of lords. Grace and mercy, wrath and judgment are found in both Old and New Testaments. And both bear witness that King Jesus will return in wrath and judgment. He will be victorious over every enemy. Sobering words. Well, how is how do we as Christians respond and reckon with the clear teaching of Scripture regarding wrath and judgment? How do we respond? And I'd like to offer a couple of things this morning. First, we may not like this teaching, we may not com- completely understand this teaching, we may continue to wrestle with this teaching, but since these are the words of God, we must accept this teaching. Scripture teaches the reality of judgment. All of us, everyone, will give an account. And accepting this teaching helps us avoid either apathy on the one hand, or a righteous smugness on the other. Since judgment is coming, none of us should be apathetic toward our family, our neighbors, our friends. And none of us should have a righteous smugness. Since God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, neither should we. So that's one thing I would say this morning. The second thing, the Bible's picture of the king's future victory means that God will exhaustively execute justice. God will exhaustively execute justice and that means that justice doesn't have to be exhaustively done by us right now. Now hear me. I've heard other preachers say things like, look at me, hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that that means we should just have a lot lay- that we should just neglect justice in the here and now in the here and now that's not what this means we should do all that we can to work for justice now we should use every righteous means to work for justice in the here and now but the reality is perfect justice is rarely attainable in this world if you don't believe me Talk to my friend, Ben Green. Perfect justice is rarely attainable in this world, yet we can rest knowing that King Jesus will bring perfect justice. See, if you reject this teaching of judgment, of God's just judgment, then all you have is whatever justice you can muster now. And I think that's why many in our society are willing to use violence and injustice to try and bring about justice right now. For them, if the injustice isn't remedied right now, then it's an eternity of injustice. Some of you have experienced significant injustice at the hands of other people you can and should pursue justice through the means we have available. Yet even as you pursue justice now, you can anticipate perfect justice then, the certain, total, and just victory of King Jesus. Psalm 21 looks back, and it looks forward. Ultimately, Psalm 21 is about King Jesus, in this psalm, we look back to his victory over sin and death. And then Psalm 21 looks forward to anticipate the return of the king and his future victory. And in light of King Jesus' past victory and his coming future victory, Psalm 21 also provides the appropriate response. Look with me at verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray.